Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. Before we start today, I just want to say thank you to Genentech for sponsoring FACT's Roundtable podcast. Often, Chinese cuisine is left off the table when diagnosed with a food allergy. But food allergy influencer and cookbook author Sharon Wong will teach us how to use tasty ingredients in our Instant Pots to create fast, easy, and delicious meals that can be adjusted to meet almost any food allergy need. Welcome, Sharon. We're absolutely delighted to host you on Facts Roundtable podcast today to discuss your new kitchen bookshelf gem, Chinese Instapot Cookbook. Thank you, Caroline. I'm so glad to be here with you. Well, we're absolutely delighted. Now, Sharon, you and I have known each other for a very long time. I actually don't even know how long. I was trying to think about it the other day, but definitely a long time. And we've known each other as food allergy advocates, parents of children with food allergies, and of course, as foodies. But you took being a foodie, food allergy management, and celebrating the delicious food of your Chinese culture to a whole new level. So can you share with listeners your background as a special voice in our food allergy community? I've lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for most of my life, and my parents mostly made Chinese food. And even when we ate out, it was also Chinese food. You know, that's just what I ate. This is our normal food. However, when my younger son was first diagnosed with food allergies back in 2006, I took the guidance to avoid Asian foods seriously. But it's really hard being Asian and not being able to eat Asian foods. And then on top of that, there's one time I asked my kids, what's your favorite food? And my older son emphatically said Asian food. He wanted me to make any and all kinds of Asian foods. And then he also asked me, can you write a cookbook for me so that I can recreate my favorite dishes when I'm older? And so I tried my best to write down my recipes. And then I guess, you know, when we were at FabLogCon eight years ago, I guess people figured out that I was writing down these recipes and they wanted me to share it. And so that's how I started my blog, Net Free Walk, eight years ago. Now, you were also involved in a lot of advocacy work. Can you tell people a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So at the very same time I started my blog, an opportunity came up to help support some legislation, SB 1266, for EpiPens in schools in California. And at the time, you know, we only had four states that had EpiPen bills at schools and, you know, Nevada being one of them, which congratulations, Caroline, you're such an inspiration. I think that, you know, that was a really great opportunity to step up and to just be able to talk about food allergies and epinephrine in schools and to get that word out at the same time. It was a little bit challenging to do both at the same time, but I tried my best. (laughs) You all did an amazing job. And 
Before we move on, can you share with our listeners what allergens you were dealing with in your household when your children were little? When they were little, my younger son had up to 30 different allergens, including like peanuts, tree nuts, shellfish, sesame, some fruits and vegetables, tomatoes, papaya, kiwi, you know, just a whole bunch. It was a really, really long list. And it was really hard to manage, especially with the sesame. Later, he outgrew a whole bunch. And so that was good. But then at the same time, my older son was diagnosed. And so then we went from like 30 to 15. And now we're back up to 30 different allergens again, because of course, my children have different allergens. It's mostly manageable because they're mostly easy to avoid. You know, it's just that we have to be super careful about the peanuts and tree nuts, because that seems to be the allergens that cause the most problems. So let's dig right in now into why you wrote this cookbook. Was there ever this aha moment, you know, where you said to yourself, Sharon, let's go do this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So an editor from Rockbridge Press emailed me uh, last year and we set an appointment to talk and he asked me questions about me and what I do. And during the course of that conversation, I pretty much convinced myself that I could do it, which is really kind of funny, you know, that I can write a cookbook. And I'm guessing that that was probably a little bit of FOMO, fear of missing out talking. But because after that, I was actually dealing with imposter syndrome for months. So <laughs> so anyways, all joking aside, both of my kids were getting ready to move out for college. And I knew that my husband and I would be empty nesters. I felt like writing a cookbook was a great transition from being a stay-at-home mom to doing a different type of work. And maybe just kind of like, bringing together all of the different recipes and thoughts that I have about Chinese food into a cookbook and all the things that I want to make. Well, listeners, I want you to know Sharon has this amazing blog, Nut Free Walk, where she shares her recipes, but she also dives into ingredients. So I can see why this is just the perfect marriage, your food allergy knowledge, your knowledge of Chinese cooking, your knowledge of ingredients and how to vet out ingredients. I've turned to your blog so many times when you would write about certain ingredients or certain products to get really good information. So I can see how you just brought this all together. Thanks. Yeah. Happy to do that. Now, tapping into your family, and you had mentioned growing up in San Francisco, which I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, too. And we all know San Francisco is just deeply rooted in Chinese culture and cuisine. So as you were growing up, did you spend a lot of time in the different shops, exploring all these different ingredients with your families or those beautiful open air markets? Yeah, definitely. Back in the day, in the 70s and the 80s, you know, San Francisco Chinatown was a very lively community. You know, there were people who lived in Chinatown as well as people who lived on the outskirts of San Francisco Chinatown or like, you know, around San Francisco that went there to shop, as well as tourists, obviously. It was really fun to go to Chinatown. There's a lot of restaurants, a lot of cultural activities, a lot of different stores. What was really kind of fun was that we would often see our family friends and my parents would catch up with their friends on the sidewalk. And we had a weekly ritual to eat dim sum for brunch and then go shop for groceries and then bring everything back and cook everything together during the weekend. And it was such great memories for me in my childhood. You know, shopping in Chinatown is a very different experience from shopping in a supermarket because we had a one fine parking and then we had to go from store to store to buy specific items from like, say, the fish and meat market or 
produce and groceries in another store or go to the tofu store to buy tofu and bean sprout. Just kind of comparison shop for the freshness and price. And so it's really a very unique shopping experience. I'm impressed you even found parking. I know, right? <laughs> that right there is an adventure. Yes. That is so wonderful. I have such fond memories of being in Chinatown and just the fresh food and the fresh smells and the fresh scents, right. which is what makes your cookbook so exciting to me, because that's one thing I noticed as I was cooking some of the recipes is the smell that was in my house was amazing. Oh, that's awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. Now turning to actually the Instapot, why the Instapot? Like, why did you decide to write this book, marrying your heritage of the Chinese cuisine with this modern day convenience? To me, it felt like you took the historical moments and memories and experiences and modernized it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would totally love to write a more traditional Chinese cookbook. But there are already so many Chinese cookbooks out there. And I felt like this was a very unique opportunity to write a Chinese Instant Pot cookbook and figuring out how to cook some of the traditional dishes in the Instant Pot. You know, it definitely is not the way my grandparents would have cooked, but hopefully it would just taste just as good. The reality is that, you know, we are all very busy and either with work or kids or errands and being in a sandwich generation is just really hard. And the Instapot is a programmable electric pressure cooker that cooks food very fast and very well. For me, it helps me to save time because when it cooks things a little shorter, but I really love cooking things in it because it really takes a mental load off of me. So instead of like constantly stirring something or like checking on it, I can just put everything in, program it, and just walk away. And then so, you know, during that time, while it's like coming to pressure and cooking and releasing the pressure naturally, I can do a lot of other things. I can relax. I can do the dishes. I can cook and prep another dish or something like that. And so it really makes a difference in helping busy families get dinner on the table and yet still be able to enjoy some of the flavors and the recipes that they may just think that is limited only to stovetop cooking. Now, do you recommend cooking like on Saturday or Sunday, several dishes for the week? How do you manage that? So for me, my personal system is that I buy enough meats for three days and vegetables and produce for three days. And then I'll just cook one dish a day. And then the fourth day, we'll eat leftovers. And the fifth day, I might pull out something from the freezer, like some heat and serve thing, because we do need that every so often. And then on Saturdays or Sundays, we might go out to eat. And then I'll just repeat that cycle again. There are some days where I would make a big batch of something. So like I might make a chicken stock or something like that during the weekend. And then I use a chicken stock during the week in my cooking. So I'll make a small batch of soup or I'll make use it for stir fries or I'll use it for like like a small bowl of soup or something like that. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm a proud owner of the cookbook. And so far, every single recipe has just been spectacularly easy. But yet the flavors are just restaurant worthy. They're very complex. It's just very fancy, even though it's been very, very simple to make these recipes. So can you explain to listeners, though, who have food allergies, 
How do you approach food allergens in your cookbook? Thank you, Caroline. I am so glad that the recipes have been turning out for you. That's super exciting for me to hear. It's a great feedback. The publisher wanted basically a Chinese instant pot cookbook for a general audience and not necessarily food allergy specific. And then on the other hand, I can see that the reason for that is because it's really hard to write a cookbook that meets everyone's food allergy needs and not to be too restrictive at the same time. So my approach was to write the cookbook in a flexible way with like easy substitutions or, you know, like rest ingredients that you can easily omit, um, kind of like how I write the recipes on my blog. My other objective was that I hope that people who don't have food allergies will see that it's easy to accommodate their loved ones' food allergies and or like their neighbors or their friends or their aunt or uncle or whoever, and that it's possible to be inclusive with simple modifications. So the recipes are all peanut and tree nut free. And except for like one variation where I mentioned the peanut variation, and then all the recipes are dairy free also, except for one recipe that uses a cheese sprinkle. I wrote some soy free recipes so that they can just make it as is. And most of the recipes you can easily substitute with homemade soy free soy sauce recipe. You can buy a soy-free soy sauce, bottled sauce. And then there's also the idea of using the recipes to make a master sauce. So I didn't include it in the cookbook because it was kind of too specific. But but the trick that you're going to get now is that you can take my ingredients for a soy-free soy sauce recipe and cook it with the beef shanks. And then the resulting sauce you can actually use as your soy-free soy sauce in your other recipes. And it's actually very common for Chinese people to make a dish like, say, for example, the soy sauce drumstick recipe. And then they will save the sauce and they'll use it again for other recipes. For you know, can use it again to make the same recipe. You just add a little bit of like a little salt and a little sugar to preserve it, and maybe you can add a little bit of the spices to make it more flavorful for the second time. That is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about some of the other allergens? My son was so thrilled to find out you addressed sesame allergy because since he's never had sesame, he has no idea of what the flavor is, but he wants to eat traditional Asian food. So can you give us a little more information on that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, sesame is a really hard allergen. And my son was allergic to sesame before. And the way I managed that was either I omitted the sesame or I made a homemade sauce instead of using a sauce that contains sesame. One of my favorite tricks and hacks is to look at sunflower seed butter. Now, sometimes sunflower seed butter separates a little bit. That oil on top, you can just use it as a one-to-one for sesame oil. And it's going to taste really, really good. But then what happens as a result is that you're going to have some really, really chunky, sticky sunflower seed butter, <laughs> which can be kind of like, uh, you know. But you can use like maybe a little bit of sunflower seed butter and then just kind of mix it in, kind of emulsify it a little bit, like mix it with a little soy sauce. And then you just use it in your recipe as is, and it'll be awesome. If people are like allergic to wheat or they're gluten-free, I don't use any all-purpose flour in their cookbook, but some of the recipes use like pasta 
like spaghetti or something like that. You can just try using a gluten-free pasta. But my experience with gluten-free pastas is that they tend to be a little bit more delicate. So I recommend cooking it separately and then just mixing it in to the recipe. And then the easy substitution is like instead of using soy sauce, use a tamari sauce, which is gluten-free, wheat-free. That's a really super easy substitution. And then if people are allergic to fish or shellfish, you know, the easy substitution is to swap with chicken or something like that in a stir fry or in a soup or something. If people are avoiding oyster sauce because they are allergic to shellfish, it's totally, completely optional. You can totally just leave it out. But if you want to try to recreate that flavor, get that a little bit of umami, a little bit of sweetness, what I would do is use, like, say, if a recipe called for two teaspoons of, of oyster sauce, use half, use one teaspoon of soy sauce and maybe like a little bit of sugar, like, you know, half a teaspoon or a teaspoon, you know, depending on your you know, dietary needs. And so that's a really good way to either substitute it or leave it out. And then for the egg recipes, if somebody is allergic to eggs, they obviously can't make the tea eggs, but they can make the egg drop soup or the chicken and egg drop soup by using vegan egg product. And just like pouring in a little bit at a time, you know, just spoon it in and then it'll just cook it up. And it'll be like, just like egg drop soup. So you can try something like, and that's a really great way to substitute the recipes and I tried to put in the substitution as space allowed, but I didn't always have space. So overall, those are some of the ideas that I would have for people with some of the major allergens. That is brilliant. Thank you. These, I don't know if I'd call them a hacks. These are like little gems. Thank you so much. These are perfect. Yeah, you're welcome, Caroline. So as we know, I'm thrilled with this book. So I decided this is it. This is my year of giving the cookbook along with an Instapot. I actually already did that with one of Layla's classmates who's from Hong Kong, who's trying to cook meals at college. And so I sent him the cookbook and I sent him the Instapot. But when I sent him the Instapot, I was a little worried because I don't think he's even ever seen an Instapot. So do you feel that for someone to enjoy this cookbook, that they really have to be comfortable with an Instapot? Or is it okay, just just like I did, just send him an Instapot and send him a cookbook? And maybe you can also share with us a few Instapot tips. Yeah, definitely. I think that is very common for people to be intimidated by using the Instant Pot. And my recommendation is to not be intimidated. Just take it out, take it apart, and wash it. You can wash every single part except for the base. And in the dishwasher, you can just stick it in a dishwasher and then just put it back together. So the main thing people need to do is they need to read the manual, and then they need to look for the section where it tells you how to do the water test. You can do the water tests, and then that helps you to, one, confirm that the Instant Pot works, and then two, it's like a great way to practice using the Instant Pot without having to invest in any food ingredients, doesn't make a mess, you know, you just practice and try it until you like it. And then I would recommend cooking something super easy and inexpensive. And so one of the easiest things to make is actually like steaming some hard-boiled eggs, or like steaming some corn. You can just stick some ears of corn in there, pressure cook it for five minutes, and then wait a few minutes for it to release the pressure. It's awesome. It is so good. You'll like not want to eat hard-boiled eggs any other way. You'll not want to make corn any other way. It is so delicious. 
I didn't know you could do eggs this way. I just did them on the stove. And it always stresses me because inevitably I lose track of time and then I overdo it or I underdo it. And then I'm trying to spin the egg on the counter to see if it's done. I mean, you think I would have this handled, but I don't. I shared a recipe for soy braised duck eggs. And in that post, I also have some suggestions on what to do to get started with your Instant Pot and links to different recipes that are really easy to start with. One of my favorites is this carrot soup, this pureed carrot soup. It is so delicious, and it's really refreshing. There's a little bit of orange juice and lemon juice in there. It's like really delicious. And listeners, I will make sure I put these links that Sharon's mentioning to in the show notes. So you can find that free walk, you can find the cookbook, you can find some of these tips and things that she's mentioned. But Sharon, believe it or not, our time is coming to an end. It's flown by so fast. Do you have anything else you would like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? You know, I really hope that everybody enjoys cooking the recipes and that they will find some new favorites that they can make, that they will be able to share it with their friends and family, and that it becomes like a door opener to more inclusion and more awareness about food allergies. You know, as people get familiar with the recipes, I hope that you can feel free to use the cookbook as a guide and that you can start mixing and matching the ingredients in the recipes and maybe experiment with doing some of the recipes pot and pot. So for example, like you could cook soup in your Instant Pot, but you can steam some rice on top of it using a trivet and a stainless steel bowl. Or you can make rice in the Instant Pot, but then steam some vegetables on top in a stainless steel bowl because that can go really fast also. One other thing that I want to let people know is that the different models of the Instant Pot have different buttons. So some of them, like the Instant Pot Duo, says manual. And that's the same as pressure cook button on some other models. And so it's a little bit confusing. Just know that they renamed some of the Instant Pots, but not all of them. And that the pressure cook button and the manual button are the same. And then some of them have different steam features. So for instance, the Instant Pot Duo has a steam button. The Instant Pot Duo Plus does not have a steam button. And then the Instant Pot Pro, which is what I have right now, has a steam button, but it doesn't go to pressure. So then the time that it takes to steam something in the Instant Pot Pro might be a little different compared to the Instant Pot Duo. So there's slight variations. So you really have to go back to looking at your manual to see what are the features in your specific Instant Pot. Now I'm feeling a little guilt that I had actually tossed out my manual and I had to go online (laughs) to pull it up. These are really important tips, but it sounds like once you get it nailed, the whole world just opens up. Absolutely. That's the whole idea. And I really love the idea that people enjoy these recipes and with less fuss, you know, that's really easy to make. I think that's what makes it so special is that it's less fuss. It introduces some of us to a culture that maybe we haven't enjoyed making the food at home. And so it's just very special. So Sharon, thank you so much for your time today. I know you've just been very, very busy. And so we just appreciate you taking out the time to sit and chat with us today. Oh, thank you, Caroline. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. 
You are welcome. Thank you. Before we sign off today, I just want to take one more moment to say thank you to Genentech for sponsoring Facts Roundtable Podcast. Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.